The phrase, you are what you eat, has particular resonance for immigrant communities. A taste of home is essential for those who are far from it. In an episode of Ugly Delicious from a few years back, the television show by celebrated chef Dave Shang, it's said of Houston in this particular episode, most cities have sandwich shops. We have banh mi shops. Banh mi are these particular Vietnamese sandwiches. It's a product of the city's Vietnamese immigrant population. An expression, in fact, of the ways that that community has held onto their culture, their identity, around the table, through what they eat. A distinct marker of their place in the city. This is the second sermon series in our series on the book of Daniel. Last week, we talked about it in terms of the title for this series, Living Faithfully in a Beastly Age. The realities, the complexities of our lives might cause us to a question, an assumption behind that title. The assumption that it's possible to live faithfully in such a time, in a beastly age. Far from home, as it were, is it possible to live faithfully? Our reading this morning begins with the conjunction but and follows immediately on from the opening verses we read last week. Daniel and his three compatriots are the focus of our reading this morning, and they are personally experiencing the situation of exile, of hopelessness, powerlessness that we talked about last week. They're far from home, without any kind of agency, in danger. Christian ethicist Hak Jun Lee has described the situation of Daniel and the three others in this way. One can easily imagine the kind of trauma these four men underwent. They were forcibly separated from their homeland, temple, their parents and siblings. They were members of an ethnic minority in captivity within a much more powerful empire. They had no available mentors or religious community, community leaders around them. They were completely by themselves without protection or any hope of return. This is the part that stuck out to me in Lee's comments. By any standard, their situation appeared hopeless. They were doomed and sheer survival could be the only reasonable goal for them. Never mind faithfulness, just survive. Forget about integrity, find a way through today. Obviously, the specific situation that Daniel and these others found themselves in is different than the situation most of us find ourselves in. Nonetheless, perhaps we can identify with that feeling. In a world of insecurity and striving, questions of faithfulness might strike us as hopelessly idealistic. In our zero-sum political environment, where the stakes for the country for democracy itself seem incredibly high, questions of integrity can feel perhaps like a luxury we cannot afford. Is it possible to be faithful? Reflecting on these verses this morning in light of that question, I want to focus on two things today. Intention and possibility. Focus on the need for intention and the real possibility of faithfulness. First, a word about intention. In addition to the question, is it possible, behind our title for this sermon series is the assumption of desire. Living faithfully assumes we desire to live faithfully, to live lives of coherence and integrity. 
as something we potentially desire, such a way of life requires intention, right? Any good goal requires intention, purpose to get there. Hakdun Lee, who I just quoted, goes on to write that Daniel and those with him realized they had to be deliberate and purposeful to remain people of faith. When you're far from home, living faithfully requires a certain level of intention. It's unclear in Daniel chapter 1 exactly why the food and drink on offer would be defiling for Daniel and the others. There's a possible connection to the idea that this would be food offered to idols or to particular dietary laws elsewhere in the Old Testament. But scholars don't agree on what the exact offense, danger, might have been. But more important than the specific why is the simple fact of the action. In abstaining, in restricting themselves in this way, Daniel and the others exercise, demonstrate a degree of intention and purpose. They make real a certain separation, distinction from the dominant culture around them and its values. They're not fully participating on the world's terms. The story of the Greek inventor Archimedes is a favorite of mine. I I know I've used it before in a sermon with Church of the Cross, but after inventing the world's first lever system and moving this great warship all alone, just using this simple lever system, you can imagine Archimedes was feeling pretty proud, feeling himself a bit and confident in his invention. He says this amazing, bold quote. It stuck with me. Archimedes famously declared, give me a place to stand and I will move the world. A place to stand. Living faithfully is only possible when you have that place to stand, when you have created this space, this distinct posture. This is what Daniel and the others, I think, are carving out for themselves here. A particular challenge for those of us living in Texas, maybe or may not be part of the uh, American South, but part of the Bible Belt, call it part of this idea of a Christian heritage. The idea in that context, the temptation with that, in that context, in our context, is that we can simply go with the flow and be faithful. There are lots of reasons to question that assumption about Christian heritage historically. But more than that, we have to recognize that the call to be the people of God, to remain a people of faith, faithful to Him, always and everywhere, requires deliberate and purposeful action. We can't allow nostalgia for another time to blind us to this. One cannot hope to be faithful and be in neutral, as it were. For Daniel and others in in this first chapter, the temptation toward total assimilation would be incredibly powerful. They have new names. They're taking on new learning under a new king. The, The means by which they could ensure their survival would be just by going along. That's the kind of natural trajectory of the way things are. And total separation isn't an option for them here, right? They don't have the option as the desert mothers and fathers did in the fourth and fifth centuries, or as the Amish do today of separating themselves, removing themselves. That's not an option. But even in such a place, with such limited power, without options, they remarkably find this way to stand in distinction from the larger system around them, 
to persevere in their commitment to the Lord, in their faith. They draw a line at the food they will eat. As it is for immigrant communities everywhere, food in our reading this morning is a means of marking identity, a means of retaining something of home and of distinction from the broader culture. This is ours. This is who we are. We will not participate fully. The language of defilement in Daniel chapter 1 here might throw us, I think often in reaction to perhaps more fundamentalist or legalistic traditions, many of us, I think, are more comfortable with the language of positive affirmation, action of engagement as expressions of our faith. Yet the example of Daniel and the others here is a reminder that part of the life of faith in a dominant culture that does not share that faith are acts of negation, acts of separation, a refusal to participate, an act of resistance. James 1.27, this famous verse from that New Testament book, reads, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, active, positive descriptions of engagement, and also to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Actions of disengagement and negation. Both are named. Both are a part of what it means to live faithfully. Part of living with integrity in a beastly time is saying, I will not. In the midst of a permissive culture, in a culture of expressive individualism, in a culture that dehumanizes others, there is the need to say thus far and no farther, to refuse to participate and hold to that. In our reading this morning, Daniel becomes a blessing to the others, right? To those around him. They all come to partake of this more healthy diet, vegetables and water. I do wonder if they were happy about it, right? Like, we liked that royal food. It was rich and tasty. But nonetheless, they're blessed because of Daniel's distinct stand. And Daniel and the others are given favor and become these treasured counselors to the king. They contribute to the common good of the culture around them, even though it's not their home. But the thing is, is that capacity to be a blessing, their capacity to bless and extend the favor they receive from God, is directly connected toward this initiative, this intention to be distinct, distinctly for God. Think about that quote that I started with from Ugly Delicious about Houston and Bon Me shops. In the episode of Ugly Delicious, it's actually said by a white person, a person who's not part of the Vietnamese community, but is nonetheless proud, blessed by the Vietnamese cuisine of the city, of Houston. The Vietnamese community's intention to retain, hold on to this distinct part of their identity is now a blessing beyond the bounds of that community, a blessing to the city. The city is better because of that intention. This is what Jesus speaks about regarding salt and light in the Sermon on the Mount. Not losing saltiness, not hiding the light, retaining a distinctive posture in the world, carving out a place to stand from which to bless. Not standing out in hatred of the world or the culture around us, but that we might be preserved as a blessing. Part of 
positive engagement, part of being on mission for the kingdom of God in the world, involves standing in distinction from that world, that we might embody something better, more gracious, more human. For us, this question of being distinct, of avoiding pollution in the world, may not involve food. Fasting in a gluttonous society certainly is countercultural and is a, a remarkable discipline for sharpening our dependence upon God, embodying our faith. But this morning, I think the word of God for us today from Daniel 1 might involve different embodied practices. I want to encourage us practically with regard to our eyes, our mouths, and our hands. Are there countercultural ways we might embody our faith in what we look upon? what we say, what we put our hands toward or not. What we look upon, to consider what it is that we watch, what it is that we set our attentions toward. Does it reflect our basic faith commitment that people are made in the image of God? Does what we set our mind toward reflect Paul's encouragement in Philippians to think about things that are lovely, praiseworthy, honoring, Will we restrain ourselves in distinction from considering those things that are not? What we say, perhaps God's call is to refuse to speak about our enemies, about those with whom we disagree politically, socially, in ways that would denigrate them, to check our tongues. James, the book of James has so much to say about this. In what we put our hands toward, to refuse to use our hands in ways that exploit others our purchasing power, where we spend our money, what we put our hands toward. This week, this season, what are the ways that God might be calling you to embody your faith by refusing to participate, resisting the trajectory of our dominant culture? In Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, this act of intention is a remarkable thing. Up to this point, Daniel and the others have totally been the ones acted upon. They've been passive. They've exercised no agency. But here they, they seize the initiative with courage. Think about it. The official is afraid it might cost him his own head. But think about the danger Daniel may be in, the potential cost. In this place of danger, great peril, and extreme powerlessness, they find a way. There's creative courage there. Tomorrow, of course, is Labor Day, this celebration of the social and economic achievement of workers. And within church circles, it's often become this day to focus upon the theology of work, or a recognizing of the good gift that work is from God. A particular writer who's helped me to think about work in a Christian way is Gordon Smith particularly in his book, Courage and Calling. That's a book I would recommend to anyone with questions about their vocation, God's call on their lives. And in that book, Smith pushes back on the idea that there are jobs or places of no influence, that there are positions of such low rank that culture cannot be made and faithfulness meaningfully embodied. The story of Daniel seems to bear this out, right? This extreme place of powerlessness, this total loss of agency. Yet even here, with intention, faithfulness is embodied, such that the larger culture is changed. Daniel exemplifies this creative intentionality. 
They find a way to give expression to their commitment of God, to God to resist the faithlessness around them. What might it mean for you to creatively do the same in your own workplace, in your neighborhood, where God has placed you, positioned you? No matter how little your influence or how entrenched the corporate culture might seem, living faithfully is possible. It takes intention, courage, creativity, discernment, but it is possible. Thankfully, however, our hope of living faithfully does not ultimately lie with our intention alone. Ultimately, our hope of living faithfully in the midst of beastly powers and times lies with the God who makes faithfulness possible. In closing, a word about possibility. Daniel's name is on this book. He's obviously a major feature of the story. But Daniel is not the hero of the story that bears his name. As with every book in Scripture, God is the hero. The God who makes faithfulness possible is the protagonist. Throughout our reading this morning, God is present. He's there. He's hidden, perhaps, in the background. But he's, again, the driving force, the major player. He causes Daniel to experience favor and compassion. He gives to Daniel and the others knowledge and understanding such that they're a blessing. Even the outcome of Daniel's dietary stand, some have suggested it is the action of God, right? Ten days later, these guys look so much better. There seems to be something divine, this divinely sanctioned before and after divinely sanctioned diet. God's actions in this story, hidden and in the background, make the courageous, intentional actions of Daniel and the others a possibility, a possibility for us. God's presence, his sovereignty, make them replicable, as they'll be replicated in this story with the lion's den, with the fiery furnace, as they'll be replicated in the book of Acts, the actions of the apostles, Paul and Silas in prison, as they'll be replicated in Christian history up to our day. Saints, ordinary people like ourselves, following in the steps of Daniel, made possible by the faithfulness of God, by his presence in history. This is very important, but Daniel 1 does not give the guarantee of deliverance and triumph for faithful living here and now. It's possible, even likely, that the actions that God calls us to, to live faithfully, will cost us something, will involve suffering. At the very least, will involve a way of life that does not look like flourishing to the culture, the society around us. That's not the case here in Daniel chapter 1. God intervenes on their behalf in this remarkable way. But it may not be the case for us. Living faithfully may involve walking the way of the cross, does involve walking the way of the cross, and there's no guarantee of immediate vindication. However, Daniel 1 does offer a guarantee, a guarantee of ultimate vindication. You might have missed this, but in the very last verse of our reading, the last verse of Daniel chapter 1, it recounts that Daniel remained in court until the first year of King Cyrus. 
It seems inconsequential, perhaps even discouraging. Daniel remains far from home. Yet Cyrus represents something more than just the next king after Nebuchadnezzar. Because Cyrus is this unique figure in the Old Testament. He's the king that initiates the return of Israel to their land, their home. He sends Ezra and Nehemiah and others to rebuild, reestablish Israel. He's a figure in the Old Testament that's actually referred to with Messiah-type language, associated with God's restoration of his people, with their ultimate return and renewal. In this way, he's a foretaste, a precursor to Jesus himself, the Messiah, the true king through whom our return and restoration is possible, the one who is fully faithful where we and Israel are not. The one who guarantees God's ultimate triumph, that his action in history, his giving, his generosity, end in full victory. More important than our own intentions is the hope of God's triumph in Christ. A hope that opens up the possibility of faithfulness, that opens up new ways of being, distinct against the grain of the world and its bankrupt vision of flourishing. Hope that we too could live faithfully in a beastly age, a beastly world. The one who is our hope says, take heart. In this world, you will have trouble. Trouble as you seek to live faithfully, intentionally, creatively distinct, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world and all its beasts. In him, living faithfully is possible. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.